So, so far we've been in a sermon series called Behold, God Makes All Things New. We've been talking about this concept of a God of renewal. In the very first week we talked about a new exodus that God brought through Jesus Christ in which he set us free from slavery to sin. In the second installment in this sermon series, we talked about how through Jesus, the church is made a new temple of the Holy Spirit, and God is with us always until the end of the age. And last week, we talked about how through Jesus, the Davidic kingdom is renewed in him. His announcement everywhere he went was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this week, we are talking about a renewed covenant. Uh, one of my mentors is a professor at Abilene Christian University. His name is Dan McVeigh, and he was a missionary in Ghana for 20 years. He was an incredible mentor of mine, and I have a distinct memory from one of his classes. He was talking about God's promises and God's faithfulness to those promises, and at the end of the lecture, which was really heating up to become a sermon, he kept returning to one idea, one phrase that he kept repeating over and over. He kept saying, God will never let you down. God will never let you down. God will never let you down. I remember one of my friends, Caleb, came up to me right after class was over. And you've got to know for this story that Caleb is the most lighthearted man I've ever met in my life. Uh, he's never... I mean, he's just the funniest person I've ever met. He's always smiling, always laughing, and he came up to me absolutely deadpan and said, God has let me down. What does Professor McVeigh mean by that? So this is our question for this morning. Does God ever, does God ever let us down? Does God disappoint us? Is God reliable and dependable or not? Now, some of you are thinking, well, of course God is reliable. You think of all the times God has come through for you and maybe your family, your people in time of need. You think of all the times in Scripture when God has rescued some individual or group in danger. But here's what I'm willing to bet. Others of you are thinking when you hear this question, well, of course God has let me down. You had expectations about your marriage that didn't turn out the way you thought they would. After praying for a loved one who was sick for weeks and weeks and weeks, they still passed away. Before launching a new project that you really believed God had called you to start, it was dead on arrival. Maybe you went into a career that you really thought things were looking good and then it failed within a few months. You're thinking, is this question even a debate? Of course, God disappoints us. By the end of this sermon, I want to show you the Bible's answer to this question, and I'm definitely going to take a side, but before I do, I want to emphasize the stakes involved in this question. Because throughout Scripture, it's hard to read a book in the Bible without seeing that God makes promises over and over and over again. He will speak to someone and say, I am going to do this for you. I am going to do that for y'all in the future. And here's the thing. If God's promises don't come to pass, then God is unfaithful. If we see that God makes an oath and he doesn't 
uphold it, then God is not reliable. If God doesn't follow through on his word, we have real evidence that God can and has let us down. The stakes for this sermon could not be higher. We can't talk about this topic casually because the stakes are that high. We're going to look at the big promises that God makes throughout the story of Israel. And these big promises are called covenants. We don't normally use that word uh, in everyday speech, but this word is so crucial throughout the Bible. These promises that God makes to his people are called covenants. And we're going to take a trip through the Bible to look at the major covenants that God makes, and we are going to see for ourselves if God actually follows through. So, Unless you're lightning fast flipping through the Bible, I'm going to put all these verses on the screen for us, and we're going to walk through the promises God makes and what he does in light of them, okay? So we're going to go back to the very first covenant God ever made with our first human parents, and what you got to know about a covenant is that for God's covenants, they always establish a bond. His covenants are not like a, a piece of paper between two businessmen. His covenants unify himself and whoever is involved. Okay, God and Adam are not just contractually obligated to each other. They are family in light of this covenant. Later on in scripture, Adam is called God's son, precisely because of this covenant that God makes with him. Okay, and all covenants have blessings. So listen to these words that God speaks over Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the beginning of his first covenant, this ceremony in which he binds himself to Adam and Eve. Now, these ceremonies are often celebrated with a meal or with food, and God is very generous. In these next verses, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. Is God stingy? Not at all. Every tree that has food with seed in it, that is yours. They will be yours for food. Covenants also bring with them a mission or a purpose. So we read in the next verse, the Lord God takes this man that he bound himself to and puts him in the Garden of Eden for what? To work and to take care of it, to cultivate this garden. Covenants also contain rules or boundaries that the parties have to follow. And, and so God, he only gives Adam and Eve one rule. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Sometimes we focus on the one rule, but we forget about the expansive freedom that Adam and Eve are given. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's the thing, if this boundary is crossed, if this rule is broken, it comes with a warning, a curse, a punishment. God says, if you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. At the end of this ceremony, God makes a sign for the covenant. This is the day of Sabbath rest. If we look in the book of Exodus, we find out from God, he says to Moses and the Israelites, you are to observe the Sabbath celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. And it will be a sign, a sign between me and the Israelites forever. That day of rest is the culmination of this covenant God has made. Every time you rest from your labors, you know I have made a covenant with you. 
So that's the good news. And it starts on the very first pages of the Bible. The bad news is that Adam and Eve are around for about five total minutes before they break this covenant. They're tempted. They succumb to the temptation. They take this fruit. They eat it. They make excuses for why they ate it. And just as the covenant stated, God exiles them from the Garden of Eden and access to the Tree of Life. But does God abandon them? Does he say, okay, now that you've broken my covenant, y'all can be on your own. Uh, you can figure out your own life without me. No, God stays with them. He actually fulfills his side of the covenant. He provides them with children, Cain and Abel. They are fruitful and they, they multiply and their descendants fill the earth, which is exactly what God promised in chapters 1 and 2. Unfortunately, those descendants also fill the earth with sin and violence, so God punishes the world with a flood. But, again, even in light of that punishment, God doesn't give up on his people. He picks Noah and his family to survive the flood. And what is his first order of business after the flood? He renews the covenant he made with Adam. We read in Genesis chapter 9, Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Have we heard this before? Right? The same exact words God spoke to Adam, he now speaks to Noah. He even expands the meal available to Noah's family. He says, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave Adam the green plants, I now give you everything. And just like his one rule for Adam, God creates a new rule for this covenant with Noah. He says, but, however, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. God includes an incredible promise in this covenant with Noah. He says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then what does he do? He gives a sign for this covenant. We read in Genesis chapter 9, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you, and not just Noah, but every living creature. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the whole earth. And what is Noah's first response to this wonderful promise of protection for all time? He gets drunk. You can read about this. It's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. This is his first response to the covenant. But does God abandon Noah's family? Does he say, whoa, Noah, this is your first reaction to my overwhelmingly generous covenant? No, he doesn't give up on them. He picks one of Noah's descendants. And what does he do? He makes another covenant with this man. His name is Abraham. You've got to listen to these promises because here's the thing. They get better over time. He says to Abraham, generations later, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And this time, God doesn't even promise a curse necessarily for Abraham. He just says, whoever blesses you and your family, I will bless them. And whoever curses your family, I will curse. God includes another sign of the covenant to show that he is a promise-making God. And he makes this sign or mark on Abraham's own body so he can never forget it. Abraham has to circumcise himself and all the males 
and his tribe. And this sign of the circumcision is so important, God institutes another rule. He says, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off because he has broken my what? Say it out loud. Covenant. Now you gotta get, you, you gotta hear what happens in this covenantal ceremony. We see the very first animal sacrifice in scripture. Abraham gets three animals, a cow, a goat, and a ram, and I'm not messing with you here, I'm not making this up. Abraham cuts them in half. These ceremonies are not clean contracts with a notary present to make sure everybody signs the dotted line. They are messy, bloody affairs. The verb in Hebrew for making a covenant with someone is to cut a covenant. So Abraham cuts these animals into, sets the pieces of the sacrifices across from each other and creates a pathway through them. When humans would make these covenants in scripture, both of the parties were supposed to walk through these pieces as if to say, if I break my side of the deal, if I break the covenant, may I be like these animals cut into. That's how serious these were. You couldn't pay your way out of them. If you broke them, you were saying, may I be like these dead animals. But here's the incredible truth. During this covenant that God makes with Abraham, he puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham is passed out during the whole ceremony, and only God passes through the pieces. God cuts this covenant unilaterally. Abraham is completely dependent upon God to fulfill his promises. And what happens over the course of the whole book of Genesis? Abraham's family multiplies. It doesn't just become one more person or two more people. It becomes 12 tribes of his grandson, Jacob, also called Israel, just like God said. I will make you into a great nation. And what happens? He becomes a great nation. Unfortunately, though, they don't stay in the promised land. They experience a famine, so they actually move south to Egypt. And while there, a new regime comes to power and enslaves Abraham's entire family, all 12 tribes. They cry out to God for freedom. God hears their cries. He delivers them from slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai. And what is the first thing he does at Mount Sinai? What's God's ultimate priority? What does he care most about in this moment? He cuts another covenant with them. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and I, I carried you on eagle's wings, brought you to myself out here at Mount Sinai, but if you obey me and keep my covenants, then out of all the nations, you, Israel, will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, God says, you will be for me a kingdom. I'm not just going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you a kingdom. Moses hears this at the top of Mount Sinai. He walks down. He summons all the elders. He tells them about this covenant. And all the people, all 12 tribes, unanimously say together, we will do everything the Lord has said. They agree to the covenant. So Moses goes back up the mountain. He brings their answer back to the Lord. And so God gives them a law in Hebrew, Torah. And it's not one rule like Adam. It's not one rule like Noah. It's the famous 10 rules, the 10 commandments. And just like Abraham, Moses sacrifices animals to God during this ceremony. 
He builds an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai. He sends young men to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices of young bulls. And then this happens. Remember, this is not a clean, tidy affair. Moses takes the blood of these animal sacrifices, he puts it in bowls, and he splashes it against the altar. That's gross enough, but guess what he does next? He takes this blood and sprinkles it on the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And what do they do to celebrate this new Mosaic covenant? They eat together. And not just together, but with God. This, is, this happens in the Bible, y'all. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, went up Mount Sinai and saw the God of Israel. I thought you were supposed to die when that happened, but God doesn't raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and get this, they eat and drink with him. Please give me a glimpse, a PowerPoint presentation on what that was like. They had this meal with God, and what is their first reaction to this new covenant? Well, down at the bottom of the mountain, they make a golden calf, and they worship an idol to an Egyptian god. Y'all remember the first two commandments? You shall have no other god besides me, and you shall not make any graven image. It was like they were trying to break the top two. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Noah, they break the covenant. But does God say, okay, I'm done, not going to be with you anymore, not interested in Israel any longer? No. God stays with them. He leads them to the promised land, helps them conquer the land that he promised to their father Abraham. And he doesn't just give them a land and say, all right, it was nice knowing all of you. Enjoy this new property. God makes them into a kingdom. We talked about this last week with the story of David. God says to David, the new king over all the united 12 tribes of Israel, I will make your name great. Who did God say that to? He said that to Abraham all those generations before. But not only that, God says, I will provide a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, so that they're no longer disturbed. And I will give you rest. The Hebrew word is Sabbath, the sign of that very first covenant. God says, the Lord himself, I will establish a house, a dynasty for you. And what's the sign of this Davidic covenant? A brand new baby boy named Solomon. God says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And by the way, there's a curse and a punishment for breaking this Davidic covenant. God says, when he does wrong, that is D David's son, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Now, if you know anything about Solomon's story, you know he doesn't live up to God's standards. We lose track of how many wives and concubines Solomon has, which explicitly goes against everything the Torah says about marriage. But does God abandon 
David and Solomon's line? Does he say, no, y'all can have these wicked kings and enjoy them. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to find another people. No. No, God doesn't do that. Because he says, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Everything he's promised so far, he's given. But here's the problem. Centuries after David, there's this prophet named Jeremiah, who as he looks over the kingdom of Israel, he is just watching it crumble because of the corruption and decadence of these kings who came from David. They're wicked. They don't do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And in his opinion, his, from his human perspective, it does not look like the Davidic kingdom is going to last. But Jeremiah hears a word from the Lord, another promise. And it's better than the ones that came before. This is from God. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will also watch over them to rebuild, to replant. The days are coming when I will make a new, what? Covenant. I'm going to renew that covenant I've renewed over and over and over and over again with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And guess what it's not going to be like? It's not going to be like the covenant I made with their fathers because they broke that covenant at Mount Sinai. Last time I put the law on tablets of stone, we saw what happened with that. It was broken. Now I'm going to put my law in their minds and write my law on their hearts. The Mosaic covenant was breakable. The new covenant is invincible can't be touched god continues he says no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another know the lord because everybody's going to know me from the least of them to the greatest for i will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more this is the promise that god makes in the midst of a crumbling kingdom what seems like a broken promise god makes another promise something even better something even more glorious and then a few centuries after Jeremiah, this rabbi from Nazareth sits down with his disciples and he cuts a covenant with them. He breaks bread. He divides the wine among his disciples. He gives thanks. And he breaks this bread and, and shares this cup and he gives it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Moses' words were, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. But 13 centuries after Moses, this rabbi says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Because Christ's covenant is not a clean contract made with a notary present to make sure everybody signs the dotted line. Christ's covenant is cut with a sacrifice, but this time it's not an animal it's his body and blood shed on the cross. And what is the meal that we celebrate each and every week? 
In response to this covenant made 2,000 years ago, it's the Lord's Supper right here. Every single week when we partake in communion, we celebrate that new covenant. And what is the sign of the new covenant? Well, it's not, it's not the old circumcision that Abraham went under. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians, In Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. This isn't physical. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. What's the sign? The new sign of the new covenant with Christ? It is baptism. God's mark and circumcision on our hearts. Man, what did God say to Jeremiah again? I'm going to put the law in your minds and in your hearts. With each and every covenant, God makes promises. He makes claims about the future. And not only does God fulfill them, sometimes he fulfills them after we break them. Think about that for a second. We sin. We transgress the boundary he establishes. And he says, not only am I going to keep my side of the deal, I'm going to make it better. It's going to be more glorious, more amazing. I'm going to promise you more, give you more. Look at how these covenants just grow in glory over time. Adam, he was made an adopted son of God through the covenant. Abraham, his whole family was adopted into God's covenant. For Moses, in his covenant, the, the whole nation, all 12 tribes are adopted by God. David's sons and all the sons after him, his whole dynasty was a, an adopted kingdom for God. And then... God sends his only son, only begotten son, to make a worldwide universal church of Jews and Gentiles as adopted sons and daughters of God. Amen. That is good news. These aren't measly contracts. These aren't empty words. These covenants create a sacred, permanent, familial bond between the creator of the universe and us. Between the Lord of heaven and earth and you. That's what covenants do. Is God reliable? Is God dependable? Yes. Always. And despite our first reaction of sin and disobedience, he continues to show up. I love tracing all the covenants from the mountains they were on. Mount Eden with Adam. Mount Ararat with Noah. Mount Moriah with Abraham. Mount Sinai with Moses. Mount Zion with David. And the Mount of Olives with Jesus. From every mountain and valley in between, God stays with his people. He loves his people. He makes promises and fulfills them over and over and over again. Every village, every city, from Texas to California, Africa to America, as far as the east is from the west, God is reliable. He's dependable. You can trust him. He keeps every last one of his promises. He always acts according to his word. Okay, but there's one thing I got to say. Whether we like it or not, most of us have expectations about God, even if they are not stated out loud. And if we don't state them out loud or we're oblivious to them, then they become assumptions about God that may or may not be true. For example, some of us assume well, God's going to make this plan of mine work out the way I want it to. Or we assume, 
God will maintain this gift that he gave me a long time ago for all of my life. He'll never take it away. Or we assume God will never let that terrible pain into my life. We assume all sorts of things about God that are not true. So it is the truth. It is the gospel that God always acts according to his word, but God doesn't always act according to our expectations of him. God will never, ever, ever break his biblical covenants, but God will disappoint unbiblical assumptions. One of the most difficult things of being a follower of Jesus is changing our expectations of God to fit how he reveals himself, not what we demand of him. Let me say that one more time. One of the most difficult aspects of being a follower of Jesus is changing our expectations of God to fit how he reveals himself, not what we demand of him. Here's the thing. I never would have said out loud 10 months ago, God would never let my daughter go to the NICU. I don't think I would have ever said that out loud, but it was an unstated expectation about who God is and what God would do. And then back in February, that very unstated assumption was blown up. But God never promised that. And so one of the most difficult things for all of us is to change our expectations of God to fit how he reveals himself, not what we assume about him. God never promises to prevent earthly suffering from happening to us. God never promises that a Christian we admire will not sin. God never promises that you will be totally free from temptation in this life. If we have those kinds of expectations of God, we will be disappointed. But the, disappoint, the disappointment is rooted in our assumptions, not God's character. So we need to put our faith in God and his stated promises, and then we will never be disappointed. He will never let you down. God promises to make each and every one of us an adopted son or daughter through Jesus Christ. God does promise to give us the Holy Spirit and forgive our sins. God does promise that those who are saved by grace will see him in heaven as he really is. God makes a lot of promises. And if you put your faith in God and in those promises, he's never, ever, ever going to let you down. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we have so many expectations or assumptions about you, and it's so hard to even know them ahead of time. It's so hard to know what we wrongly think about you or anticipate about your works. So, Father, help us to return to Scripture, to see these promises, to know which ones they are, and know what you haven't promised. We see throughout the generations, from Adam to Jesus, that you are faithful. You've made so many promises, and you've kept every single one of them. 
But Father, we have so many unstated assumptions about you. And we just lift those to you and sacrifice them to you in hopes that you'll purify us and change us, change our expectations of you. Father, we want more faith. We want deeper trust in you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, give us that faith. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.